Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. So it was certainly um, an alarmed, I think, uh, a shaken chief medical officer of health yesterday, Dr. Nina Hinshaw, presenting the latest COVID-19 numbers from the weekend. And in, in relatively short order, we've gone from daily case counts in the 100s to the 200s, then into the 400s, now into the 500s. And it's entirely possible we'll be flirting with quadruple digits uh, before November is done with us, maybe even before then. Um, so things are, are certainly on a concerning trajectory. Uh, we did hear yesterday some new health measures announced by the Chief Medical Officer of Health, restrictions on uh, private gathering numbers for both Edmonton and Calgary. The voluntary restrictions that were in place uh, previously for Edmonton are now in place for Calgary, and, and a reminder for people to continue to follow the public health advice. Are these steps sufficient, though? What more needs to be done at this point? What, what should be guiding our decisions about how firmly we respond in, in trying to get a handle on the situation? Uh, so joining us to talk a bit more about uh, what they think the uh, government ought to be doing and some of the ideas they think might make a difference. Very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, Alberta's former premier and current opposition leader, NDP leader, Rachel Notley. Ms. Notley, great to have you with us. You're welcome to the program. It's good to be here. Um, so you, you had a news conference today to talk a bit about what you think needs to be done. Just your assessment of, of kind of where we're at right now and, and how the government should be approaching the situation. Is, is there a need for some, some urgency here? Well, I think there absolutely is. And, and your introduction really, really nailed it. I mean, uh, we're seeing our case counts go up considerably uh, at an alarming rate. Uh, here in Edmonton, our per capita active case count is now the highest city in the country, higher than Montreal. Uh, the per capita case count in Edmonton actually is higher than the national average in the U.S. So, uh, and, and, and Calgary is, is quickly catching up. So we need to be concerned. Now, I want to put it out there because, of course, the problem that we've had up until now is that every time we try to talk about responsible public health measures and, and, and resources to, to controlling the spread of COVID, the uh, UCP and the Premier respond immediately by saying, oh, you want to shut down the economy. And then they try to shut down the conversation, which is uh, incredibly uh, disingenuous. Uh, it's a tactic, and it's actually not a position about how to do better for Albertans. And we're not interested in shutting down the economy. In fact, what we want to do is avoid a situation uh, where we'd be shutting down the economy. But if we continue to pretend like there's nothing new to see here, then uh, we are uh, putting, you know, all of the livelihoods at risk uh, because they're not acting fast enough. So, um, so yeah, so that's where we feel. And we have a, a few ideas that we uh, talked about uh, earlier today. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and it's interesting because I had a, a column in the Calgary Herald today uh, 
kind of calling on the government to, to take some some steps to address this. And so there's there's some overlap here. So I would be disingenuous if I were to say these are terrible ideas. I, I think some of these <laughs> make sense. Um, certainly when it comes to testing and tracing, I, I think up until recently, Alberta's been a leader when it comes to testing. I, I think that's 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 been a positive. But mm-hmm. it seems like we've we've kind of plateaued. We're not at the 20,000 a day that, that the premier's talked about. And just in terms of the ability to do contact tracing, it seems like we're falling short there. So what do you think needs to be done on those fronts? Well, yes. No, I was going to say, you know, thankfully we put out our press release notice last night, so we didn't literally crib off of your article today. <laughs> well, promise. if you want to, I, I, I wouldn't <laughs> mind. Not sure. But, uh, but no, seriously, I mean, I think, I, I mean, yes, we, we have a, a, a high level of testing, and we were one of the provinces first out the door and uh, on that, and, and that's good, and the government deserves credit for that. But the, the challenge that we're seeing now is that uh, in terms of getting the results for those tests, people are having to wait longer than, than we think is necessary. So we see some provinces that actually take a, do regular reporting on what the average turnaround time is. Alberta doesn't do that, and I think it would be helpful because we would be holding ourselves accountable and certainly we're seeing occasions where people have to wait days and days. And of course, until you know if you're positive, uh, you know, either you're irresponsibly sort of going out there and people around you don't know that you could be positive, or alternatively, you're sitting at home and not able to go to work and, and ultimately having that same negative impact on the economy. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is the issue of tracing. And, and uh, you know, essentially, uh, we, we don't have the app because for whatever reason, this government's continuing to bicker with the federal government. So we don't have the federal government's app. We have the failed app that they introduced earlier this year, and, and somehow they can't get over the fact that it was a failure. And so we haven't moved on to the, the federal government app. But let's be honest, there are going to be a number of Albertans who might not even want to sign on to that app. So we actually need those in-person contact tracers. And we know that uh, best practices, there's a recent article by the Harvard uh, uh, Medical Journal that recommended 30 tracers per 100,000 people in the population, which means we kind of need to hire about another five or 600 tracers. So that doesn't happen overnight. We should be making that an urgent priority. Yeah, I, I think those seem like reasonable steps. Uh, now, you, you've also got a couple of different uh, items on this list, and one of them mm-hmm. is, is to create a COVID risk index, and, and that would be for businesses. We can talk about that also uh, as it pertains to continuing care and, and minimizing the risk there. So let's go through each of these. What's what's this risk index? What, what that, what's that all about? Well, that's actually something that I, I will give uh, someone else credit for because we actually did crib it from the Edmonton Chamber of Commerce, and they uh, put out a report with that as a recommendation. In order to give greater clarity to businesses so they have an understanding of, you know, if they're watching the case numbers, they're watching the infection rate, they're watching the the, the R, R rate, they're watching the hospitalization rate, like what are the triggers uh, so they can make their own plan. So that was one of the things that, that they asked for because as much as the government says, oh, we've laid this out, they've actually moved the, the goalposts repeatedly on that issue. And so there isn't really the level of clarity that uh, the UCP insists exists anymore. So this is just a recommendation. And, and I agree that not necessarily one size fits all, 
But I think that you could put some overarching uh, rules out there that, that say this is the point at which uh, things will change. And then, we'll, you know, we, we might even allow for the fact that it would be considered on a regional basis or a, an industry basis or whatever. But it would just give businesses more to work with. The other thing that we've talked about is uh, establishing a system more like BC's as it relates to managing the healthcare workforce in uh, long-term and continuing care. Uh, we saw in BC at the very beginning of this that they had the highest rate of cases uh, in the country. And they also had a, an alarming rate of cases uh, amongst seniors in seniors' homes. And so they acted a great deal more aggressively and more quickly, not only to stop workers from moving from one place to the other, but also to essentially take control of the management of that workforce in order to ensure that they were adequately paid and adequately trained and adequate numbers of people in our continuing care system to keep seniors safe and well cared for while uh, limiting the number of infections. And so as a result, you now see their per capita cases significantly lower than ours, even though their population is significantly older. There's one, one item on this list, and it did raise an eyebrow to me because it, it seemed maybe somewhat political, maybe not as, as relevant to the here and now of the COVID situation, that the Alberta government does have plans to eliminate a number of jobs at AHS, contract out those, those services to the private sector. We don't know the timeline of that or what the transition is going to be. And yet you cite this as, as something that should be abandoned as though that is going to help the here and now of, of these COVID cases. What, where's the connection there as you see it? Well, absolutely, and that's a good question. Uh, what I will say is that the government of Alberta, this UCP government, is absolutely the only government in the country right now that is picking a fight with healthcare workers. And, we, of course, we see it with doctors, we see it with nurses, and we see it with these uh, uh, frontline support workers in healthcare. And the reason I say it's connected is this. These folks uh, provide food for people that are in our hospital settings. They also uh, provide uh, cleaning and, and, and sterilization and the very things that are absolutely critical to stopping the spread of infection in hospitals. They go to work every day into some of the most dangerous, high-risk, uh, situations of, of that any of us any of us are going to they go they put themselves at risk and through them their families at risk uh, they make on average about twenty dollars an hour they are primarily women they are primarily people of color and now what's being ha is happening is they're being told to go to work show up damn it and oh by the way your pink slip may or may not show up in the mail today tomorrow or the next day now I don't know about you but I think that these people are just are only human and to ask them to work under those circumstances with that level of uncertainty and disrespect and fear uh, is bound to create chaos. It's bound to undermine the quality of work they're able to provide to people in our hospitals in the middle of a pandemic. And so to me, common sense suggests we should stop attacking them, stop suggesting that their work doesn't matter, Stop suggesting that we can reorganize it in the middle of a pandemic and perhaps give them just a little bit of respect. What about walking off the job, uh, illegal strike action in the pandemic? What, what did you make of that yesterday? Well, honestly, I think for the reasons that I just described, uh, you know, this is something that this government should have expected. They have been bullying uh, this very uh, vulnerable group of workers for 
some time. They've been asking them. Many of them are working double time. They're working overtime uh, because, they, you know, their colleagues, if they get exposed to somebody and they're in hospitals, they have to then take time off of work, all that kind of stuff. And, and now they don't know if they're going to have a job past, you know, January or February or March. So they're frustrated. So those workers are frustrated. And as you know, the Labor Relations Board uh, did ultimately conclude that it was the workers that uh, did this sort of sporadic walk-off. It was not uh, the union promoting it. But they've just been pushed. And quite frankly, I think, uh, you know, earlier, you know, two months ago, we were all, I know I was, and I'm sure you were too, you know, leading cheers in our neighborhoods, uh, thanking these frontline workers, the central service workers who had to go to work every day, talking about giving them uh, hazard pay premiums, all these things. And now uh, they, they've run out of sick leave, the hazard pay is gone, and they've been told they're going to be fired in a few months. So, yeah, they're frustrated. And that's what we saw. All right. We'll leave it there. Rachel Notley, appreciate you making some time for us here this afternoon. Thanks for this. Thank you. Take care. Rachel Notley, opposition leader, NDP leader, uh, former premier as well, and uh, her thoughts, uh, well, some thoughts on the uh, strike action yesterday, but her thoughts on what the government could be doing right now uh, to deal with rising COVID cases. Uh, so it's important to point out, look, you can go through the list and, and, you know, quibble with some of what they're suggesting, but it's important to note that they're not proposing any sort of lockdown. They're not proposing any business closures or those kinds of restrictions. So it, it again, it comes back to that. It's not a binary choice between doing nothing and shutting everything down. So I think there's some some worthwhile ideas here. I, I think the Alberta government could have some more urgency in addressing this that doesn't have to involve closing anything down. Now, the premier himself has conceded that if things get to a certain point, he may have to look at that. Now, it's not clear what the threshold is. Uh, certainly, they, they've set uh, one of the bars anyways as being, you know, is the healthcare system nearing capacity? But the problem is, if we do nothing, and then we get to that point, and we wake up one day and say, holy crap, we've run out of beds, we better do something, there's not a lot of options we have at that point, short of shutting things down, that are going to make a big and immediate difference. So I agree with the impulse here, that let's at least exhaust our options when it comes to responses that don't have to involve any kind of shutdowns, any kind of closures. And if we can at least bring down the number of daily cases, bring down the number of people in hospital, bring down the reproduction rate, we'll have something much more manageable. And that's what we had for for some months, right? Once we went to uh, stage one of the relaunch, and that went really well, went into stage two of the relaunch, and that was going well for a while. Things have gone a little sideways with cooler weather. We kind of expected that it might. So let's step up our efforts in other areas. Increasing testing doesn't close down any business. Hiring more contact tracers doesn't close down any business. Finally, getting that that uh, COVID alert app doesn't close down any businesses. So why, why aren't we emphasizing those strategies right now? Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you. It's been interesting to look back over the past couple of years as the group Nexium, you know, really came into the public consciousness, a group that a lot of people hadn't really heard of, uh, but it become relatively uh, powerful and influential behind the scenes. And we've gone from really people not knowing about this group at all to, to now, I think, a lot of people having heard of it. And uh, now we're finally to the point where authorities weren't really sure what to do with this group before. 
that its leaders are being held to account, and in particular, uh, the founder and leader of Nexium, Keith Ranieri, was sentenced yesterday to 120 years in prison. Uh, for his crimes. He was found guilty on seven charges, two counts of sex trafficking, racketeering, and forced labor conspiracy. Other charges uh, of attempted sex trafficking, wire fraud conspiracy, and racketeering conspiracy as well. So some pretty serious charges. And uh, the trial was less than five hours uh, of jury deliberation. So the case was made quite conclusively as to the crimes of, of Keith Ranieri. Joining us to talk more about this uh, ongoing saga uh, is someone who's been uh, very close to it all, uh, writing about this, having his own run-ins with uh, the folks at Nexium, and working with those who have uh, escaped from this group. Rick Ross is executive director of the Cult Education Institute. He's a renowned cult expert and deprogrammer, author of the book Cults Inside Out, how people get in and how they can get out. More at culteducation.com. Rick, great to have you back with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks. So, 120 years in prison. That that's quite a message that, that that the courts are sending here. What did you make of that? That Keith Ranieri will die in prison, and that there's no possibility of him ever hurting anyone again, unless he somehow hurts the inmates within a maximum security facility, where where he will spend the rest of his life. His sentence was stacked consecutively. Uh, if he appeals, he'll have to appeal each count. I think regardless of whatever money he he may have stashed, uh, his life is really over. He will be warehoused in a federal prison for for the rest of his uh, life. What do you think turned the tide? For a long time, and, and you know this well, that, that there were those who were trying to blow the whistle on, on this group, those who had got out, who were, were trying to, to wake up authorities to what was going on. And for a long time, it, it seemed as though either they were turning a blind eye to what was going on, or they, they didn't know how to approach it, they didn't know how to deal with this guy. You know, things obviously changed quite dramatically. What was it, do you think? Well, as you know, there were two heirs to the Seagram's fortune, Canadian citizens, Sarah Bronfman and her, Sarah Bronfman and her sister Claire Bronfman that gave reportedly over a hundred million dollars to Keith Ranieri. This this is just some of the money that ran through his hands. And he used that money to lobby Albany, New York, uh, to uh you know, influence politicians. He had a paid lobbyist. He had a public relations guy. He had a fixer. All of these people worked the worked the environment to make sure that he was not held accountable for anything. There were many victims. Many times they went to authorities and they said, look, he's involved in tax fraud. He's involved in uh, immigration fraud. Uh, there, there are labor violations. Uh, he's he, he has sex slaves, and the authorities did nothing. It wasn't until Catherine Oxenberg, who, who, was, who, played, uh, who played a part in the original Dynasty series in the 1980s and who is a very well-known celebrity, until her daughter was victimized by Keith Raniere and she became involved, that things changed, that things shifted. She lobbied, she went to the media, she blew the whistle, and then finally a woman, Sarah Edmondson, also a Canadian, uh, came forward. She was in the Vancouver branch of the Ranieri Nexium operation, and she said, yes, he had me branded with a cauterizing iron, uh, his initials in my pelvis, and she showed her scar to the New York Times, and that precipitated 
the outing of everything that Keith Raniere did, reportedly more than 100 women were tortured brutally. They were held down with the cauterizing iron. Uh, a Dio, a doctor uh, who was a follower of Ranieri's, carved his initials in each one of them while they laid there with no anesthetic. And Ranieri watched. So this was a man who got away with a lot for a very long time. I testified in the criminal trial against him, and he sued me for almost 14 years continuous, continuously. Uh, it's estimated that the Bronfmans probably spent $5 million suing me alone. And it's also been estimated that they and others supported Ranieri with more than $50 million in legal fees to harass his perceived enemies and critics. It's interesting, the evolution of this group. And, and Nexium was, I guess it was kind of what's referred to as a multi-level marketing company. It almost seemed kind of pyramid scheme-ish, right? But it was about bringing people in and, and unlocking all these secrets to, you know, improving your life and changing your outlook and and, and all of these things. Um, but it, it seemed that in the process that, that as Keith was building himself up as, as this guru, as this individual who was kind of revolutionizing how we think about ourselves and how we live our lives, that he was this genius. That, that all along it was building this this really weird loyal following. How, how did this company, this this multi-level marketing company, morph into this group within a group, which was essentially then this this sex cult? Well, Keith Raniere started out as a multi-level marketing guy. He was a distributor for Amway, and he then copied that model and created something called Consumer Byline. Consumer Byline was ruled a pyramid scheme in the courts, and um, numerous attorney generals of various states in the U.S. sued Consumer Byline and shut it down. After that, Ranieri kind of floundered. He then created Nexium with Nancy Salzman, who understood something called NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming, uh, which is a form of persuasion uh, in which you manipulate people through the way you talk and present yourself and also mimic them in order to draw them in. And Nancy Salzman also was a trained hypnotherapist who was very knowledgeable about what's called large group awareness training or these type of intensive seminars where people spend days on end being trained by coaches and by leaders that control the environment and, in my opinion, uh, use influence techniques to gain uh, an upper hand and leverage people into submission. And so that's what Ranieri did. He would charge $16,000 for one of these intensives. And then people became involved in his philosophy, which was what the intensives downloaded. He called it rational inquiry. It was part Ayn Rand, a lot of Scientology, a, a dash of Earhart Seminars training, now known as Landmark Education, uh, a kind of Socratic method of question and answer that he called exploration of meaning. Uh, and, and of course, the multi-level marketing structure that he learned from Amway, which he employed in various ranks of people who recruited others. And it was really a bait and switch con. I mean, he would lure you in, tell you that he was going to help you to be a better executive, a better worker, a better person, make a more ethical world. But that was just the bait on the hook. Once you got involved, it was all about him. 
He called himself Vanguard, and they spent yeah. weeks celebrating his birthday in what they called Vanguard Week. Well, in, in, the, in that sense, yeah. I mean, I'm, and I'm sure you see a lot of parallels to other cult leaders you've studied. There, there are some differences here, I suppose, in, in the way he built this organization. But at its core, do you see a lot of those similarities, a lot of those parallels? Oh, absolutely. He controlled the environment. First of all, he controlled the environment when he locked people into these 16-day intensives. Uh, one woman had a psychotic break and was hospitalized. Another committed suicide, saying her mind had been destroyed. She drowned herself in a lake in Alaska, Kristen Snyder. So there were casualties even before uh, Ranieri was you know, outed as the as the, you know, psychopath and villain that he is. I mean, but but what he would do is he would entice people to move to Albany, New York. And there was a core group of, I would say, a couple hundred people, at least that lived in the Albany, New York area. And that's where Ranieri grew up. And of course, he lied uh, constantly about his achievements. He said he had over a 200 IQ, that he was, uh, he was a double major student that was uh, superlative, that he was a martial arts uh, expert at a young age. And, and all of these things were lies. You know, Mike, I, I sat through his deposition, which lasted hours. And in that deposition, when he was under oath, he admitted he couldn't substantiate any of these claims. I mean, he really was a, a grifter who, who ran the same con on the same people indefinitely. And if it wasn't for the Bronfmans and their money who enabled him and kept him going, I don't think he would have hurt as many people as he did. And of course, Claire Bronfman is now in prison. She has been sentenced to almost seven years in prison. Yeah. Uh, and I think uh, Allison Mack, the actress who who was uh, you know very close to Keith, she's awaiting sentencing. So too is Nancy Salzman. Where, where where do things stand with some of the others who've been convicted here? Well, I think Nancy Salzman got a very good deal. She was the first one to flip. Uh, but honestly, I think she is one of the most guilty people, other than Keith Ranieri, in the entire Nexium structure. She was his confidant, his second in command, often his enforcer. She brought her daughter Lauren in, who also has pled guilty to felonies and is waiting sentencing. But Lauren, who, who came in when she was only like about 20, uh, would never have come into the group if it wasn't for her mother. And I feel Nancy Salzman should be punished more than her daughter, who testified against Keith Ranieri and, in my opinion, was victimized by him. Allison Mack, I, I think, yes, she was victimized, but she brutally participated in the torture of many women. Uh, she was there to, to make sure that they were branded. And uh, the way that she handled India Oxenberg, Catherine Oxenberg's daughter, and the way that she came between that very close mother-daughter relationship that they had, uh, which they have again now, but for a while they, they were distant, they were separated, and uh, Allison Mack and Nancy Salzman vilified uh, Catherine Oxenberg and made India feel basically that she had to uh, cut her off, which she did in large part for a while. So I think probably Nancy Salzman will, will get at least a five-year sentence. Allison Mack, I think probably closer to 10. And I hope that the judge will be somewhat lenient with Lauren Salzman. She might do uh, five or 
or maybe even as little as three or four years. And then there's a bookkeeper, uh, Kathy Russell, who might get probation or some type of work program. Uh, quite fascinating. More at uh, culteducation.com, and uh, folks can follow you on Twitter as well, uh, Rick Allen Ross. Rick, appreciate the insight. Thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Thank you. There you go. Rick Ross, uh, cult expert, the programmer, executive director of the Cult Education Institute, author of the book Cults Inside Out, how people can get in and get out, and someone who's been uh, tracking Nexium for some time, and uh, as he alluded to, has had uh, plenty of run-ins himself with them over the years. So certainly one of the big lingering questions as we go through each day of this pandemic is, when might we see a vaccine? How close are we to a vaccine? Are we going to get a good vaccine? At what point will will that be widely available? And it remains an open question. Obviously, there, there's been all kinds of speculation, some optimistic, some more pessimistic. I know at, uh, at one point the U.S. president had uh, suggested one would be available before the election, which is now a week away, less than a week away. So that's uh, probably not going to happen. Um, but we had today, I mentioned this story earlier, the head of uh, vaccine procurement in the U.K. suggesting the possibility uh, that a vaccine could start to roll out in calendar 2020 before Christmas, she says, although conceding that an early 2021 launch is more likely. Now, certainly there is a uh, British frontrunner when it comes to vaccine development, AstraZeneca and Oxford University, uh, reporting some positive findings this week in terms of the induced immune response in both young and old participants um, you know, for their vaccine candidates. So that's encouraging. And there are a number of vaccines that are in various stages of development, some in that critical stage three uh, trial, others uh, in, in other various stages of development. But uh, there, there's a lot to keep track of. To that end, uh, McGill University uh, has launched uh, an interactive real-time uh, COVID-19 vaccine tracker uh, to provide people accessible, reliable information and to try to answer a lot of these questions that people have. Now, you can find it at covid19.trackvaccines.org. Joining us uh, to talk more about this project is uh, Dr. Nicole Basto, uh, who's an associate professor in the Department of Epidemiology, Biostatistics, and Occupational Health at McGill University. Dr. Basto, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. So let's talk about why, you know, from your perspective, it was important to, to create something like this, given all of the questions everybody has about vaccines. Yeah, I think people are paying attention to vaccine development more than they ever had because of the hope that a vaccine is going to help us to control the pandemic. So my colleagues and I, who are all researchers in epidemiology, infectious diseases, biostatistics, we brought together our expertise to create a resource that anyone could go to online and really get a handle on the whole landscape of COVID-19 vaccine development. So they could really track where we are in the process and try to think about how far we have to go until a vaccine might be available. Yeah, what's also interesting about this too, and, and it's not just kind of the technical side of uh, phase three trials and, and all, of, all of that kind of information, which this definitely includes, but even I think to help people understand this whole process, what goes into developing a vaccine? What's the, the beginning of that process? Like, what are these various stages? I think before COVID-19, it wasn't something that most of us really paid close attention to, was it? 
Absolutely. We have a really rigorous process that all vaccines go through in order to be evaluated in clinical trials. But I think prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, most people weren't aware of that process. They mostly found out about vaccines when they were at their physician's office and being recommended to receive one. But what was happening scientifically behind the scenes, I don't think was on the radar. Um, one of the things we've done on our site is provided that kind of general information so that people can see what a phase one trial entails, what a phase two trial entails. They can find out how many people will be volunteering for the phase three trials. Those are the largest trials that ten- have tens of thousands of people, 30,000 people perhaps, um, where the vaccines are trialed and e- evaluated in that final stage to determine if they're safe and effective. So we have some of that background information to share as well so that people can put the news that they're hearing about COVID-19 vaccines in context and try to make sense of it because there really is quite a lot of information and misinformation out there about the COVID vaccines. Yeah. You know, and, and certainly, you know, I mean, a lot of history is being written this year, but just in, in terms of, of this effort to develop a vaccine and, and how, how far we've come in, in relatively short order, you know, developing a vaccine can typically take years. Uh, the fact that we've got uh, literally dozens of vaccines in various stages of development, some in those, those critical late stage phase three trials, just how, how remarkable is that in your view? This is really remarkable progress, especially when you recall that a year ago, this was a virus that nobody had even known about before. So in that short time of just several months, we have now 50 vaccine candidates that are being tested in clinical trials in humans. 11 of those are in phase three, the most advanced stage of testing. And more than 30 countries around the world are conducting clinical trials. So this is a massive global effort, and it really shows how much science can achieve and accomplish and how much progress can be made when the resources are devoted to trying to tackle something like the the scale of the global pandemic. So I think it's created a lot of optimism that some of these vaccines will prove to be safe and effective, and hopefully multiple vaccines will become safe and effective and will be license because we're really going to need as many tools as possible to try and prevent uh, the spread of COVID-19 as time goes on. And so there's now, in fact, this this was a bigger number than, than I thought it was. There are now 11 candidates in phase three trials. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. And um, they're really being trialed in a lot of different countries around the world. Um, a lot of different technologies are being used in all of these vaccines. We see some of the traditional technologies that have been used to develop other vaccines that we already have on the market that already protect against other diseases. And we also see a whole host of new innovative technologies that are being tested for the first time. So in terms of vaccine science, it's really an exciting time and a, and a time full of optimism. That's interesting because phase three trials are, are obviously the most important stage, but they, they tend to be very big and, and you, you want them to be long enough to give you some good answers. But in this instance, you know, there's some level of impatience, I suppose. But essentially, then a phase three trial is let's give uh, a bunch of people the vaccine. Let's give a, a, a comparable, comparable group a placebo and just see whether it works. Right. That's kind of what we're down to then. Yeah, essentially, all the vaccines that have made it to phase three trials have already crossed the threshold in phase one and phase two trials. So we know that they have some indication that they um, induce the appropriate type of immune response. 
But the phase three trials are so much larger in scale in terms of the number of people that are enrolled. That's really where we get the critical definitive evidence and we can say this appears to be safe and effective and this is something that could really be a powerful way to prevent the disease on a broad scale and a a wide range of people. So the phase three trials, many of them will be able to determine how safe and effective the vaccine is on a shorter time frame, but then they will also have a a longer follow-up period of a year or sometimes two years or even longer to see how long that protection that they induce lasts. Because that's another big question about COVID vaccines. How many doses will they require? How long will the protection last? Will booster doses be necessary? All the typical questions that we have when new vaccines are being developed also apply in this case. Something else people can learn about is, you know, the various kinds of vaccines. I mean, I think we all understand the basic premise of a vaccine. But uh, what's interesting in in, in the race to develop a COVID-19 vaccine, even just looking at the ones that are in phase three trials, there's uh, the non-replicating viral vector. There's an RNA-based, a couple RNA-based vaccines. There's the inactivated virus. There's a protein subunit uh, vaccine. So these are all really different approaches, kind of trying to do the same thing. But I think that's that's something else we're kind of learning about through this process is how many different ways there are to get there. Absolutely. I mean, vaccines are kind of amazing in that their ultimate goal is to kind of train our immune system to recognize the pathogen so that if we get exposed to SARS-CoV-2, the immune system can ramp up and fight off the pathogen and keep us healthy so that we don't get infected or we don't get sick. Um, But there are a lot of different ways to kind of lead the immune system through that training. And and these different approaches with protein subunits or DNA vaccines or RNA-based vaccines or viral vectors are different kinds of approaches that can stimulate the immune system to recognize when it's uh, faced with SARS-CoV-2 and eliminate it or reduce the amount of symptoms that we might experience following infection. So it's a really um, comprehensive, I think, approach to try all of these different technologies and see which of them induce which types of immunity and try to figure out how we can really protect people as much as possible via vaccination. And there's also, there are Canadian companies involved in this. Uh, Some of the Canadian uh, vaccine candidates are are a bit further back, so they're not in, in the phase three stage just yet. But what can you tell us about vaccine development here in Canada? Yeah, the um, ongoing trials in Canada are, um, there's a phase one trial from the Medicago company, which has a virus-like particle vaccine for COVID-19. They're just finishing up phase one and phase two or three and three should start in the next few months where they will also enroll um, thousands of people. Um, And then the Canadian government has also made advanced purchase agreements with a number of different vaccine companies so that if their vaccine proves to be safe and effective, they've already pre-ordered a certain number of doses to make those vaccines available here in Canada. And I guess the big question uh, everyone wants to know is how close are we? And it's it's a difficult question, obviously. What What's your sense, though, of what, what a reasonable timeline is at this point? Did you have any any thoughts or guesses on that? Yeah, it's really difficult to say. When we started building our vaccine tracker, we recognized that what we were trying to accomplish is to show people how far we've come. It's much more difficult to predict how much further we need to go. I think it's really promising to see that there's already 11 of the 50 candidates in phase three trials. That's really remarkable. Um, the first phase three trial just started in July. So we're only a few months after that, the initiation of that first trial. I think the optimistic response is that likely in, within the next year, we will have one or more candidates that have been licensed. 
Although then the next challenge that we face is ensuring that there's enough doses and ensuring that there's equitable access so that everyone who is prioritized to get vaccinated and everyone who wants to get vaccinated has the opportunity to do so. So I think we still do have a long road ahead, but I think there's a lot of promise because vaccines are going to be such a powerful tool in uh, combat, combating the pandemic. All right. Well, lots of information at the website, the COVID-19 vaccine tracker. It's covid19.trackvaccines.org. Dr. Basta, thanks again for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. All right. Take care. Uh, Professor Nicole Basta, Associate Professor of Epidemiology at McGill University and involved in putting together the COVID-19 vaccine tracker. So a lot of information there. If you're curious about where things stand, how many are in phase three, what's the status of those phase three trials, how big they are, where they are, you can find all that information there. If you're curious about the various kinds of vaccines that are being developed or what that means, what's the difference between a non-replicating viral vector and an inactivated uh, virus vaccine or an RNA-based vaccine, you can read more about that. Uh, so it's, it's pretty comprehensive and pretty handy if you're looking to stay on top of that information. You're not going to get a countdown uh, to, to vaccine date. This isn't about what the, um, what the, the uh, availability of a vaccine is going to be, not making predictions about how close we are, but just charting the progress. And, and I think you can see just from where we're at right now, there's been a remarkable amount of progress. So like I say, there there are those who are optimistic that maybe even possibly calendar 2020 will have something available, even if it's just to frontline healthcare workers or certain vulnerable groups. That may still be optimistic. And and at the other end, you know, there are those who say, hey, there's no guarantee that we'll we'll get one at all, or it might still be a couple of years away. Off the top of this hour, they'll want to talk about some of the challenges facing Canada's uh, tech sector. More than 130 Canadian tech leaders have signed on to a letter calling on the prime minister to get behind a prosperity plan. They say without one, our country's tech industry simply isn't going to soar to the heights that it's capable of. So what does that plan look like? Well, joining us uh, to talk more about this letter, about the uh, state of the uh, tech industry, and uh, what a prosperity plan looks like. Very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, uh, the Executive Director of the Council of Canadian Innovators, uh, Ben Bergen, joining us on the line here this afternoon. Ben, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Rob, for having me. It's great to be with you this afternoon. Well, we appreciate you joining us. CanadianInnovators.org, by the way, is the website if folks want to read more about uh, the work that your organization does. But let's talk about this letter. And, and your organization was kind of a driving force behind this letter. Why did you feel there, there was a need for this? Yeah, so, look, we as a country really need to come up with a, a prosperity strategy. We basically have two shifts going on right now um, because of, obviously, what's happening around COVID. So one you know, we're definitely going to be generating a massive deficit, and we've got to figure out how to pay for uh, this deficit. Um, and, you know, as you were mentioning in your earlier story, you know, oil is not at $100 a barrel like it was in 2008 during the last economic crisis that we faced. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we need to figure out how to create uh, prosperity and wealth in order to pay for this. The other thing that we're seeing uh, happening, Rob, is um, COVID transforming and really ex- accelerating um, uh, the economy to be becoming uh, digitized. Um, so we've really got to figure out as a country, how are we going to commercialize intellectual property and data um, so that we can generate, uh, uh, you know, obviously revenue and profit um, and ultimately taxation to, to pay for the social programs that we as Canadians care about. 
So when we talk about a prosperity plan, right? What is what does that look like? What is it we're trying to achieve here? Right. So you know, here's a really good sort of example to kind of highlight how the economy has shifted and why we really need to think about it in different terms. In 1975, 13% of the S&P 500 was the intangible economy. Fast forward to 2015, 87% of the intangible economy is what makes up the S&P 500. And that number has only increased uh, as COVID's gotten worse. So thinking about companies like Facebook, Amazon, Google, so the large tech companies is really where wealth is created and generated. Um, and Canada has struggled um, to create successful technology companies that have scaled uh, and been able to generate that type of, of wealth. And so as we you know, continue to move forward into this economy, we as Canadians really have to come up with what are the strategic uh, policy levers that we have at our disposal to be able to create uh, a successful uh, country. You know, we just, we just slipped behind Slovenia. We're now 22nd. Um, in the Bloomberg Index of Innovation, and, and we continue to slide backwards. And this is, this is troubling. Well, and this letter points out that, uh, you know, when the, the Liberals took office in 2015, uh, that there were, as the, the letter says, signals that they understood the importance of Canada's transition to a knowledge economy. But they say in the years since, innovation has been barely mentioned. We see a more of a patchwork instead of a bold, cohesive plan. So wh- where have we missed out? Where have we dropped the ball over the last five years? Yeah, so this is not going to sound, you know, super sexy, um, you know, maybe to, to, to every listener, but it's really in terms of thinking about how public policy needs to be cohesive across many different sort of buckets, if you will, right? So when we're thinking about the intangible economy, it's intellectual property, it's the ownership of the idea that really matters. Um, and so, you know, when the government wants to spend money on things like the super cluster or strategic innovation funds, you know, we're not embedding an IP framework that allows that wealth to be pooled and captured within Canadian companies. And so the concern is with a lot of the programming that we've seen is that a sort of continued um, uh, system where IP and value flows out of the country, even though we've spent sort of these large pockets of money uh, to try and actually stimulate the economy. So, you know, what we're really wanting to see is, uh, public policy that really sort of runs the gambit. Everything from, um, you know, when we were renegotiating the USMCA or, or, or NAFTA deal, looking at that digital chapter and making sure that it obviously embeds the importance of tech and innovation, um, to looking at, you know, how our universities um, commercialize intellectual property uh, through um, businesses. Well, let's come back to the, the point about intellectual property. And uh, that, that's another area that, that can seem, you know, sort of technical and, and mundane to people. But why is uh, IP, intellectual property, such an important facet of, of this? Yeah. So, I mean, if we think about a company like Google, right, what do they really produce, right? It's, it's the ownership of the intellectual property behind their algorithms, Um, and behind their technology that really has the value. And that's how they can seek rents. That's how they can seek, um, you know, profit for for basically what they do as a company. And so rather than thinking of things in sort of a traditional kind of brick and mortar, right, what we're seeing is the valuation is is actually in the ownership of the idea. And so, um, you know, as we continue to fast forward and more and more companies become technology companies, um, this problem is only going to be exacerbated. Let's just think of, you know, what happens when farming goes Uber, right? And you ultimately have a technology overlay um, 
where the real sort of wealth and value is being created. What happens when that happens in oil and gas? What happens when that happens in lumber? And the challenge for Canada as a country is that we have really relied on resources and it is flipping at a dramatic pace the importance of IP um, and and the ownership of that and, and the commercialization of it. And we really need to, as a country, figure out how we can create successful firms that can compete globally. Now, certainly a lot of jurisdictions, they, they all you know want to be the next tech hub, and, and there seems to be a lot of competition between jurisdictions, even between Canadian jurisdictions, to be that. There's been a lot of talk about how you know Calgary uh, can strengthen its position or Alberta can strengthen its position. But do we contribute to that patchwork problem if we've got jurisdictions with different approaches and competing against one another? Is there a real need for a national approach here, do you think? Yeah, so look, I think ultimately the federal government really has to sort of set the table in terms of creating a national strategy on on some of these key pieces. Um, um, And I think that, you know, provinces should play into and and work with uh, the feds to make um, uh, public policy in terms of what will lead to sort of success, right? So, you know, how can we avoid things like obviously duplication? Um, How can we, you know, definitely streamline some processes uh, around things like IP and, and data uh, public policy. So for sure. But ultimately, I think that this really does rest with the feds in terms of leading that narrative and, and pushing it forward. I think in Alberta, you've seen some really interesting stuff um, come out of um, Minister Doug Schweitzer's uh, office, really sort of a commitment from him um, to really try and begin to understand some of these key components and has really signaled, I would say, a change in the provincial government in terms of um, their approach to the innovation economy. I think really realizing that this is where there's a tremendous opportunity for the province. But as you say, that uh, Canada has recently slipped uh, in terms of its overall competitiveness. Are, are we at a bit of a, a tipping point here? How much, how much urgency does there need to be? So look, you know, I think that this is a, a really critical um, uh, moment for Canada. Um, you know, countries' economic successes are not always a determinant public policy matters, and we're at an inflection point, and we need to figure out how to get this right, or we're going to find ourselves in a, in a sort of poor um, position, um, and ultimately not being able to afford and pay for the social programs that we as Canadians care about. I mean, we've seen cuts in Alberta recently, um, and that's because there isn't the money to pay for those programs. Um, and that will only continue unless we come up with a proper strategy in order to support prosperity and wealth. And in an innovation economy, that's through the ownership and the commercialization of intellectual property. So we have to figure this out. This is an imperative. This is kind of everything, to be very frank. Mm-hmm. Well, this open letter to the Prime Minister and uh, much more uh, online at CanadianInnovators.org. Ben, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Rob. Really appreciate it. Take care. Uh, that is Ben Bergen, Executive Director of the Council of Canadian Innovators, and uh, why they're calling on the federal government uh, to, to put some emphasis on a prosperity plan to help unleash our tech sector and probably in the process help unleash a lot of other innovation. Uh, CanadianInnovators.org. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, Rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.